From the Cairo Radio Newsroom in Seattle, I'm Dave Ross, and these are the Ross Files. It was April of 1969. I was a senior in high school. I had been accepted at Cornell to start in the fall, and we see this news story that black students had taken over the student union, which was named Willard Strait Hall. It uh, all ended peacefully with a famous picture of some of those students armed with long guns and wearing bandoliers, and my parents thought, what is David getting into? And what I would never have guessed at the time was that one of those protesters would end up at the pinnacle of American capitalism. He is Thomas W. Jones and has finally written his memoir, From Willard Strait to Wall Street. And uh, you're the perfect person to comment about the the protests we're seeing now. And in fact, the, the protests uh, that were happening in Seattle were like a, a flashback for me because my freshman year, 69 to 70, was nothing but chaos at, uh, at Cornell. So I'm, I'm curious, what is your reflection on what's going on today? Well, Dave, in 1969, I was an angry young man because I felt that I was part of the generation of African-Americans that had to shoulder the responsibility of fighting and putting our lives on the line to end the racial oppression of African-Americans in this country. When I look at what's happening today, I put it into historical perspective. So, for example, with regards to police and vigilante violence against African-Americans, the historical truth is that as awful as what happened to George Floyd might be, the truth is that those kinds of incidents happened 50 times more frequently 50 years ago and 100 times more frequently 100 years ago. So that doesn't make it okay that incidents like that still happen. But the truth is that the frequency has been reduced dramatically. And I think that that represents enormous progress in this country. I also put historical perspective with regards to some of the social and economic issues that are being raised with regards to the black community. And the truth is that the educational attainments, the economic attainments, the social status, the political attainments of the black community in America today are enormously greater than they were 50 years ago uh, when I was on the steps of Willard Strait Hall. In fact, the progress of black America is so great relative to 1969 that if you had described America today, most people in 1969 would have said that's not possible. (laughs) This country could not change that much. But the truth is that millions of African-Americans have been have received uh, college educations, many of them at the best universities in this country. Uh, African-Americans have achieved the highest status, the pinnacle of every single occupation and profession in this country. Millions of African-American families have been lifted out of poverty. An African-American has been elected the president of the United States. Now, you know, that's just enormous compared to where we were 50 years ago. That doesn't mean that there isn't still work to do and that there's a disproportionate 
number of African-Americans that continue to be in poverty and receive inadequate education. But the truth is that this country has made enormous progress, and we ought to recognize that and have that as part of our conversation, even as we also recognize that we still have additional work to do. So should the protesters go home or change their message or what? They should not go home because there still is enormous racial uh, discrimination and economic injustice in this society. And, uh, you know, the protesters are doing a good job of of drawing attention to that. And I'm enormously heartened uh, that, uh, you know, in many cities, it appears that a majority of the protesters have been, um, you know, Caucasians and Asian-Americans and other, you know, other communities other than the black community have come out in support of these issues. And, and that helps to build a political consensus for this country to take the next steps that are required uh, to, to kind of remediate some of the obstacles that the black community has faced. So it is important for the protesters to deliver that message. Uh, they should not, they should not, you know, uh, remove themselves from the streets, but their message should be moderated and balanced. And the moderation and balance that is needed is to say, we recognize how much this country has accomplished. There are still far too many in the black community that have been left behind. And now we need we need to recognize that and we need to finish the work of rectifying the historical injustices and truly trying to achieve a country where there is equality of opportunity um, um, in, in all spheres. One of those inequalities is the, the disparity in household wealth. Now, you are now a senior partner at TWJ Capital. Uh, at one point, your offices were located at the World Trade Center before it uh, all collapsed, of course. Um, so you're, in a, you're well positioned to talk about what it takes for an African-American to accumulate wealth in America. Can, can what you were able to do be extended to others who find themselves uh, living paycheck to paycheck? Well, yes, it can. And one of the important messages that has come out recently with the various protests and the media attention to these issues is the growing recognition in America that the poverty in the black community is in part the result of specific historical intent on the part of uh, political powers in America. So, for example, you know, it's now in the news and commonly recognized that the New Deal, Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal fair housing programs, which really built the American middle class by allowing federal mortgage insurance to support home ownership, you know, that was the spark for home building and home ownership that really built the American middle class. Well, guess what? Most black communities were excluded from those federal housing assistance and insurance. And that was actually written down, right? I mean, that was was written down in the the law. That was the law. The black communities were red zoned out of eligibility um, for those federal mortgage insurance programs. There were similar restrictions with regards to 
uh, the ability of African Americans to take advantage of the GI Bill and educational uh, support after World War II. So, so the country is in a position to recognize that the wealth gap, the educational attainment gap, exists because of historical policies. The good news is that that means it can be reversed by policies intended to address the imbalances and to rectify them. I mean, one of the the ideas is reparations, some sort of payment. I know it's defined differently by different people. It sounds like you think that this could be done instead of direct payments to people who can trace their families to, to uh, slavery. It would be done through some sort of uh, generalized program. Do you have any ideas along those lines? I, I, you know, frankly, I have not seen a specific definition of what reparations would be based upon and how they would be calculated and how they would be distributed and so on and so forth. So it's a little bit too vague and too general for my taste right now. I will say that I think that much of the gap that exists could be addressed through uh, K-12 educational funding. This is this is the foremost source of the continuing perpetuation of the wealth gap, which is communities like that which I live in, you know, in, in Fairfield County, Connecticut, the Gold Coast towns of, of Darien and Greenwich and New Canaan and Westport. You know, these towns are, real, are built around economically successful people who cluster in these communities, and then we spend enormous amounts of money for the public school budget. I mean, that is the purpose of these towns. Yeah. 95% of the budget goes to funding education. And those schools then gear the kids. They really train them to excel in those skills that we define as meritocracy. And that includes standardized exams and things of that sort. And these kids who are then prepped and primed to excel in the measures of meritocracy are admitted to the top schools in the country, often where uh, the parents who live in New Canaan and the similar Gold Coast towns are alumni of those schools. And then the premier businesses in the country often only recruit at that handful of top schools. And this whole cycle keeps perpetuating itself, and we call it meritocracy. Well, you know, 20 miles from New Canaan is Bridgeport, Connecticut, and they have nowhere near the educational resources available for that predominantly black community, as exists in the Gold Coast towns of Connecticut, just a few miles away. So one of the first things we have to do is stop basing K-12 educational funding on local property taxes, because that creates a built-in self-perpetuating advantage for communities of wealth to endow their children with a superior advantage coming right out of the blocks, which becomes almost impossible for the child of color coming from a poor community to overcome. Mm -hmm. So the country needs to face that reality and, and and, and fund K-12 education in low-income communities and communities of color on the same basis as it's funded 
in the wealthy communities of our country. Easier said than done, though. um, I grew up in Westchester, northern Westchester, where um, we had great schools at the time. IBM was in town, and um, we got a great education. What What I've noticed since moving out here to Washington State, where the state does try to do what you said. They, they collect property taxes and they try to distribute it equally. That in the wealthier districts, the parents raise private money on their own. Like here on Mercer Island, there's a Mercer Island Schools Foundation, which is outside the tax system, and they provide things like computer labs, et cetera, et cetera. So it's very difficult to squeeze those kind of inequities out of the system, it seems to me. It's, it, it is difficult, Dave. You're quite right. And, you know, frankly, it's a reason why... Um, I'm a proponent of, you know, with this additional funding, I would not give it to big public school bureaucracies. You know, I would give vouchers to parents so that we're empowering the parents to seek out schools that excel at 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 doing what those parents believe is the best for their children. And, you know, in many cases, those will be charter schools. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons why charter schools excel in many cases is because they also are adept at fundraising on the side. And That's that true. additional philanthropic fundraising helps to offset what you just described as what happens with the wealthier parents in the wealthier So you think that the minority should be in favor of charter schools? Then? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I would empower the parents and uh, just say that the parents are empowered to fund those institutions that do an excellent job for their children. Mm -hmm. It's not about teachers' unions, and it's not about big city bureaucracies. It's about what's best for these children, and parents ought to be empowered to help make those choices. And you were about to make a second point before I interrupted you there, so go ahead. Well, I was was going to go to... uh, the point of, you know, another major reason for the poverty in the black community is the unemployment rate and the labor force participation rate. I was listening to a presentation a week or so ago by the dean of the Yale University School of Management, and he was making the point that almost 30, approximately 30 percent of prime-aged African-American men, uh, and that's defined as ages 25 to 54. This is the prime labor force age. Almost 30% of those men are not participants in the labor force. And this is roughly twice the number as applies for white America. And the reasons are uh, part of it is medical, things like disability, You know, part of it is incarceration, you know, imprisonment rates. And, you know, the third part is just unemployment, people looking for jobs and they can't get jobs. So these rates are about twice as high in black America as white America. And frankly, if 30 percent of white American men who were prime age for the labor force were not in the labor force, we would have had the same kind of emergency programs that we enacted in the in the in in under Franklin Roosevelt. Yeah. You know, the work the, the works progress administration to create training opportunities and jobs for these people. And we need to do that for these black men who are victims of inferior education and need an opportunity to restore their dignity and economic opportunity to take care of their families 
And we should look to the government to be an employer of last resort, just like what happened in the Great Depression, to give these men skills. And by the way, we should try to couple corporate America with these programs to provide vocational training and apprenticeship opportunities so that as these men develop skills that fit with corporate America's needs, they could transition out of government employment positions into the private labor force. So that would be the second big program we need. There have been attempts to pass laws in Congress that would uh, would guarantee full employment. There was, was it the Humphrey Hawkins Full Employment Act years ago? Uh, anyway, it's it's come back in various forms. Why is that so difficult to accomplish? You can't say it's the cost because, as we're seeing right now, you can <laughs> write checks for trillions of dollars at the drop of a hat if you want to. And yet, for some reason, you know, writing checks to create jobs for people is uh, never gets done. Right, and and I think one of our problems is you know that we don't approach a blue collar occupational opportunity in the same way that, say, a a country like Germany does, which has been highly successful with with vocational education. And one of the reasons that Germany is successful is because the vocational skills needs are defined very much by the manufacturers, you know, the, the companies in Germany who potentially will hire these people they're helping to define the skill needs, shaping the curriculums, participating in the training, and very importantly, providing apprenticeship opportunities for these people as they go through the training process. So that when somebody completes the training, they're in an apprenticeship, which is very likely to turn into a full-time employment opportunity. It's that linkage to the private workforce which I think is the key to long-term success and, and which ultimately minimizes the long-term cost because people transition to the private labor force. Another reason, and we need to be honest about this, just as with K-12 educational inequity, there are many occupations, you know, you think of the trades, the skilled trades, electricians, and plumbers and carpenters, any any trade which requires a license or a certification often has crafts unions or crafts guilds which use that licensing or certification process <clears throat> to create barriers to entry. And those barriers to entry are often applied in a racially discriminatory manner. So we need to have our eyes open to that and recognize that there's a reason why black men are underrepresented in the construction industry in many of these skilled occupations. But these are fixable problems, especially as you know, polls are showing that a majority of the country now recognizes and a majority of white America is saying they believe that there is discrimination, racial discrimination against people of color, and it should come to an end. Mm -hmm. And that gives me great, you know, the country's never been in that position, Dave. And it means that there's a potential for progress here that we have not previously achieved. One of the other charges I hear, and we have, we now have a a socialist city council member uh, 
who argues that there are simply fundamental flaws in capitalism that make it inherently unfair. You're clearly a capitalist. You run an investment firm. Uh, What do you think about that? Well, I think that the objective historical truth is that capitalism has raised more people out of poverty than any other economic system in the history of the world. That is the truth. You know, the incentives and the disciplines that are associated with capitalism create efficiencies which are superior to any other economic system yet practiced in the world. That is the truth. At the same time, we have to recognize that any system um, can have excesses in certain respects. And so we need to be alert to those areas where there, there need to be, you know, regulatory, uh, uh, regulatory standards, which kind of shape the practice of capitalism uh, to ensure that the benefits flow to the greatest number of people and aren't simply captured at the top by the people who have the most power. Mm. Let me give you an example of that, if I could. Yes, please. Early in my career, when I first started uh, in the early 1970s, uh, you know, working in corporate America, what I discovered was what I would call benevolent capitalism. You know, there was uh, often, you know, in top corporations in America, often very long tenured, even even career employment on the part of many people. There were very generous medical benefits, very generous pension benefits, usually what was called a defined benefit pension, which at the end of your career was designed to to give you 50 or 60 percent of your final years, uh, you know, the average final year's earnings um, in retirement, as long as you lived with your spouse receiving, um, you know, a survivor benefit. And, you know, the notion being that that defined benefit pension in conjunction with Social Security would replace 75 or 80 percent of your pre-retirement income. So this this what I call Benevolent capitalism was very generous to the people in the middle and the lower tiers of corporate America and very modest at the top. So, for example, in 1981, Reginald Jones retired as the CEO of General Electric, widely lionized as the top corporate CEO in the country. I mean, every poll of Fortune 500 top CEOs, Reginald Jones, year after year after year, was the top guy. He retired after a 30-year career at GE, and the paper, Fortune magazine reported that uh, he walked out with $10 million. Now, $10 million in 1981, you know, he was wealthy. Yeah. And, you know, $10 million in 1981 is equivalent to maybe $40 million or so today. So he was wealthy, but he was not so wealthy as to be out of touch with his community. And, you know, his moderation at the top was one of the reasons why there could be such generosity in the middle and the lower tiers. 
Now, what happened? In the 1980s, there was a phenomenon, you know, it's, it was called the leveraged buyout phase, you know, the corporate raiders, KKR, you know, Colbert, Kravis, Travis Roberts, Roberts <laughs> epitomized the era, you know, with the takeover of RJR Nabisco, which was, uh, you know, that was the famous barbarians at the gates story. And you remember Michael Milken, the yes. junk bond king. Well, he was financing these takeovers of established, you know, American corporations by leveraged buyout firms like Cobra, Kravitz, Roberts. And the playbook was that these firms like Cobra, Kravitz, Roberts would borrow enormous amounts of money to take over a company. They would go in and they would slash cost in order to improve the cash flow in order to pay the debt service and to pay dividends to themselves. Well, the cost in most American corporations is very heavily people weighted. You know, it's personnel cost, it's salaries, it's benefits, um, it's employee training. So these raiders would come in, you know, they would cut headcount, they would cut salaries, they would cut bonuses, they would cut the pension benefits, they would cut, cut the medical benefits. It's one of the reasons why, you know, we've ended up now with, you know, hardly anybody gets a defined benefit pension anymore. They all became defined contribution where all the risk is on the employee as to whether they can save enough money and invest it wisely enough. Well, you know, it didn't take long. In 1987, the headlines were that Michael Milken made like $587 million. In one year, Michael Milken, $587 million. And you could just see the change in corporate America. And it wasn't long before corporate CEOs, not, not all of them, but many of them said, gee, if people are getting paid like that for cutting cost, I can do that too. Hmm. And so fast forward, fast forward, 20 years later, let's stick with the GE example. General Electric, Jack Welch retires in, in 2001. Fortune magazine reports that Jack Welch walks out with $413 million. Okay? Yep. And 17 years later, Jeff Immelt, after what was considered to be a failed CEO tenure, leaves with $211 million. Meantime, GE stock tanks. GE stock tanks, headcount has been cut, the benefits have been cut, research and development has been cut, and this enormous wealth being pulled out of the top of these corporations, it's just, you know, I have nothing against paying successful corporate leaders very well, but the truth is that most of them are simply very good stewards of businesses that have been built over generations and generations. What you're saying is there is a problem with capitalism. There's no reason. Well, it's it's an inefficiency. You know, it's not a, it's not something. Well, should something have done something about this? Evolved. Could the government have done something? Yeah, when they... we have the mechanisms. You know, it, it didn't necessarily need to be law. One of the reasons we had what I call benevolent capitalism 
for so many years was because it was the moral standard in this country that the people who were in leadership positions had moral codes of modesty and moderation. And oh, by the way, you know, let's be fair. One of the reasons capitalism was benevolent during that period is because there had been a great scare in this country starting in the 1920s with regards to, you know, the success of communism taking over countries around the world. And so capitalism became a lot more benevolent in this country because it needed, you know, it was fearful of, of, of the workers and the voters moving leftwards and endorsing socialism or communism. So that was one of the reasons for the benevolence. But the point is that that was capitalism and it was fairer to the average person than what we practice today, which uh, rewards, let's call it winner-take-all capitalism today, where those at the top receive what I consider to be excessive awards. There's an enormous difference between, you know, people like Steve Jobs or Bill Gates, who essentially are creative geniuses and create new products, which become new industries. And be, and, and because of those new industries, you know, um, enormous employment opportunities are created, enormous economic wealth is created in the country. And these people, you know, I think deservedly, you know, end up as billionaires. Creating new wealth, new industries, new companies is very different than simply being a good steward of the company that you inherited, you know, from prior generations of good stewards. And so I think our, our current form of winner-take-all capitalism needs some rebalancing at the top to be a little more moderate at the top and a lot more generous to the people in the middle and the lower tiers. So just to bring it all full circle then, what would today's Thomas Jones tell that young revolutionary back in 1969 who helped take over the student union at Cornell? Uh, I would tell him that uh, this country has changed enormously, um, that, uh, uh, well, I'll, I'll tell you one of the things, you know, the most successful, arguably, the most successful black American businessman is, is a fellow by the name of Robert Smith, who's the founder of Vista Equity Partners, an enormously successful private equity company, um, uh, is a billionaire. Uh, He's currently the chairman of uh, Carnegie Hall, Um, um, and he's a Cornelian. And um, uh, actually funded, you know, the School of Chemical Engineering at Cornell is named after him. He's class of 85. And he told me one day, uh, my success is possible because of trailblazers like you. And I thank you for what you did. So I would tell that young student today, you know, be alert, pay attention, but don't be a prisoner of history. Be objective. Put everything in historical perspective. If this country is truly, uh, you know, irreparably flawed, as some would argue, well, then you've got to deal with that. But be an informed judge. 
you know, be analytical. And I'm pretty confident that you would agree with where I am, which is the truth is this country is enormously better than it used to be. That does not mean it's perfect. America probably never will be perfect. We were born in imperfection, you know, in the first days where we're saying that all men are created equal. And and at the same time, we have widespread practice of slavery. This is imperfection from the very beginning. But over time, you know, the balance has consistently shifted closer and closer and closer to approximating the ideals that we espouse. And I would tell that young person, you be sure that you are part of the energy and the push to continue to move that balance closer and closer to the ideals that we espouse. That, that's your civic responsibility. And then I would say your responsibility to yourself is to learn the discipline of giving 100% effort to do your best at whatever it is that you have set out as your objective, because you will never know what your potential is as a person unless you give your best effort to achieving that potential. And you won't know what it is until you try. And so focus your life on this combination of your responsibilities, your civic responsibility to your community and your country, which is to push it forward, and your personal responsibility to yourself, which is to have the discipline and the work ethic to lift yourself to your highest potential. Thomas W. Jones, senior partner at TWJ Capital LLC and the author of From Willard Strait to Wall Street, uh, a fascinating story. And um, I appreciate talking to you. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed it very much, Dave. Thank you for the conversation. Remember that when there's a longer version of the interviews on Seattle's Morning News, you can usually find it right here in the original form, unconstrained by the limitations of a live broadcast. And you can subscribe so that when someone says, did you hear what was on Seattle's Morning News, you can say, not only that, I heard the part that wasn't on Seattle's Morning News. So my advice is to subscribe. And then when we talk to an author, a politician, an entrepreneur, an artist, a scientist, a teacher, a journalist, a celebrity, you'll hear every word. I'm Dave Ross. Thanks for tuning in.